Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. A Hamilton lawyer offers his take on the Peter Cahill trial. Canadian pharmacists are worried about our drugs going south. Ryan Reynolds helps the Terry Fox Foundation. Darren Flutie joins me to talk about the Ticats Wall of Honor. As gas prices have dropped, so is interest in EVs. And what country is on your vacation bucket list? The JMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Peter Cahill of Binbrook. You've been hearing the story in the news. He was found guilty of manslaughter in the 2016 shooting death of Jonathan Styers. He is going to receive his sentence in June. He was back in court yesterday as victim impact statements were being read. And you'll recall this is the case in which Cahill was found guilty of killing Styers in, in the middle of the night when Cahill said Styers was trying to steal his truck. Uh, Jeffrey Reed is a Hamilton criminal attorney and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jeffrey, thanks for joining us this morning. Oh, you're welcome. Good morning, Rick. So we heard victim impact statements yesterday. How important is this phase when it comes to Superior Court Justice Andrew Goodman sitting down and determining a sentence? That's a good question. Uh, I, I think you can answer from a legal and a non-legal point of view. I think from the non-legal point of view, uh, it, it, it um, permits the public to participate in a way that uh, hadn't really been done uh, directly before. The, the legal way is more problematic. Uh, they really don't have a direct effect on it, but uh, they can um, have an, uh, an incidental effect in this sense that the court will take into account uh, how it has uh, affected and how broadly it's affected other third parties. And that's a proper uh, consideration for the court, deciding what's a proper sentence. I just want to throw in one really important idea when everybody looks at a sentencing, and that's that the fundamental principle of sentencing is that it has to be proportionate to the gravity of the offense and the degree of responsibility of the offender. And you can find that in Section 718.1 of the Criminal Code. So the, the thing is that uh, victim impact statements will be taken into account with many other factors. And I, I'll just add, for those who are particularly interested in cheaters, uh, if they get out their criminal code or look in Google, they'll find uh, some purposes of uh, sentencing at 718, that's Section 718 of the Criminal Code, and they'll find uh, some other sentencing principles at Section 718.2. So if you look at those three sections, uh, they give you a pretty good, uh, concise idea about what the court has to think about. Mr. Cahill said yesterday in court that he is forever sorry for the pain he caused the family of Jonathan Stiers. How much weight does that carry with Justice Goodman? That, too, will carry significant weight because the uh, uh, court has to consider what's the attitude of the uh, offender. So uh, clearly, uh, if an offender has, and I use the word offender only because there has been a, a trial, there has been a verdict, it's a legal fact. Uh, that uh, there's been a finding of guilt, and it's for the offense of manslaughter. Uh, so, so the court has to look and say, well, you know, what, what do I do with this fellow? And uh, sentencing has to be imposed, and all those considerations have to go into it. So amongst the multiple considerations that go into sentencing are things like deterrence and denunciation. In other words, uh, is this a person that needs a heavy rap over the knuckles or not, because they have or haven't yet learned the lesson? Uh, uh, an offender who says, look, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm genuinely remorseful, uh, and the court accepts that, then we'll, the court will be able to say, well, all right, uh, that sentencing principle is mitigated somewhat because uh, I, I don't have to beat this person over the head in order to make them understand they've committed a serious offense. I, I, it has great weight. 
Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Jeffrey Reed, Hamilton criminal attorney. We're talking about the trial of Peter Cahill, found guilty of manslaughter in the 2016 shooting death of Jonathan Stiers. Uh, there is a, another part of the victim impact statement a portion of this. Certainly families, uh, uh, members of the victim spoke out yesterday, but the defense also presented uh, some uh, support for Mr. Cahill, one of those being uh, Joan Cahill, Peter's mother, who said that not only did Peter grow up with a, uh, some financial hardship, but he's already gone through two other trials connected to this case, which obviously is added to his stress. Does, does the judge take that into consideration as well? I think the judge will take it into consideration because, uh, uh, you know, uh, in, in a slightly different context, when we were talking about issues of trial delay, which are different than this, but it was once said by uh, one of our Supreme Court judges a long time ago that uh, there's the exquisite agony of waiting for your trial. And that was in the Askoff case, and that was Justice De, uh, Peter DeCorey. And, and I think that you can analogously say that the same thing is here. Uh, it, it's clearly a very uh, um, uh, anxiety-inducing and stressful situation for somebody to be facing a charge and to have to uh, go through the stress. And, uh, and, and, uh, and don't forget, there's a lot of other incidental things. I'm not even going to go into things like the, the cost of it and so forth, but the human cost in terms of just putting your life on hold, essentially, is significant. That's not to diminish the uh, effect on the uh, uh, victim. Uh, or in this case, I, I don't. I don't mean that in, in the, the directions. I mean in the in the community and those who are uh, affiliated with and supportive and part of the victim's family and friends. Because clearly they have too. But this is not a zero sum game. Everybody is hurt by this, and and that's you know that's even regardless of the question of who's at fault and who's not and to what degree. Everybody gets hurt when when something like this happens, and I think that uh, those um, statements from the uh, both sides um, uh, re- really reflect that, and the court will take that into account. That is a great point. the The minimum sentence for manslaughter involving a firearm is four years. That's what the defense is asking for. The Crown says that uh, Mr. Cahill should serve ten years behind bars. In that latter portion, that that ten year request, how does that number come about? Is there a a, a formula to that? Well, not exactly a formula. It's um, rather like uh, looking at the body of case law that's grown up over a very, very long period of time. Excuse me. The thing about manslaughter is it's a, it has a very, very broad range of uh, sentencing. So absent the use of the firearm, which triggers the mandatory minimum of four years, absent that, uh, manslaughter goes all, all the way from a suspended sentence to a life imprisonment. And Really, what affects that is we go back to this idea of proportionality and uh, and accountability. Uh, the uh, question is, uh, um, I think, it was nicely put by both defense counsel and crown counsel. Crown said, "Look, this is this is more to an intentional homicide, more closer to." He didn't say it was because he can't because it wasn't a murder conviction. Uh, whereas uh, the defense counsel said, "No, uh, Mr. Manishin pointed out that uh, this is more close to an accident than uh, than than anything else." Although he too can't say it was an accident because then uh, there is this uh, conviction for manslaughter. So manslaughter sits in that middle ground, uh, and I think it might be helpful if uh, your uh, listeners were uh, keeping in mind that manslaughter is essentially it's a wrongful killing. So um, when you look at the verdict of the jury, and it's uh, juries don't give reasons, uh, obviously they cannot give reasons, but you know, uh, they didn't uh, find guilty of murder, so that takes the uh, intentional killing off the table. 
But they did find manslaughter, which means they think that there was a, an unlawful killing. And uh, and it seems to me that they, they probably concluded, okay, we're not going to accept the, the self-defense. We think the Crown's disproved that. But we don't think that the, there was an intention to kill. So in comes the middle ground of manslaughter and a huge, broad range of sentencing. And I should add one other thing. You didn't ask me, but I, I think it's good for your listeners to know. Sentencing is notoriously difficult. The reason it's difficult, and I don't mean just difficult for everybody. I mean for judges, because there are so many factors, and they are judgment issues. There's no bright line other than the other than the mandatory minimum. You you can't get around that. So four years, okay. But beyond that, where do you go? So all those other factors, and that's why it's judges are called judges. They've got to use their judgment. It's very difficult. Absolutely, and we'll find out the sentence in a couple of months' time. Jeffrey, really appreciate your insight into this. My pleasure. I hope I've shed a little light on it for you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's talk pharmaceuticals. Because Canadian pharmacists say there is an urgent need for a national conversation about how this country can protect its drug supply from Americans. And it sounds like some action is being taken. Federal Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos says he's working with the provinces to prevent the mass exportation of essential medications to the U.S. Justin Bates is the CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Justin, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. So give us a sense of what is happening with our narcotics that are being ordered by Americans. Yeah, I mean, it's just not a new phenomenon. Uh, we're certainly seeing it uh, hit uh, more awareness with the medication called Ozempic, um, given the ubiquitous marketing and advertising and just the proliferation of its use uh, in both Canada and the U.S. But we have seen uh, what we call reimportation of drugs from Canada into the U.S., and that's creating shortages. It's uh, certainly not helping in terms of making sure Canadians have access to the medications when and where they need it, um, because the supply for Canada is just for the Canadian marketplace. So if we have any diversion of our medications, like we're seeing in BC, almost 15% of their total medication supply is going down to the U.S., it means they'll be less available for Canadians. And part of this is happening because of shortages in the U.S., and demand being so high. It's also because our brand name drugs are almost half the price of what they are in the U.S. So there's a financial incentive as well. I'm glad you mentioned B.C. because uh, I read that there was a Texas-based doctor with a license to practice in Nova Scotia that sent 17,000 prescriptions to two pharmacies in B.C., which were then mailed to American residents. Uh, Is this an uncommon occurrence or are we seeing more and more of this? Yeah, I, I would certainly wouldn't say it's uh, you know broad or widespread. Um, this is clearly uh, taking advantage of a, a situation and perhaps a loophole because in Nova Scotia, doctors who are Canadian licensed uh, can co-assign a U.S.-based uh, prescription. However, um, this is clearly you know obviously taking advantage of that, and you're not even getting a Nova Scotia pharmacy to um, ship the products that's going out to to BC. So that's where I think the federal government needs to look at the regulations, make sure that there's not uh, you know scenarios like this where people are finding loopholes um, because it can be financially lucrative for both the physician and uh, the online pharmacies that are doing this, and and it's just not not right. Uh, and it's something that uh, we need to be very careful of. In Ontario, that can't happen in the same fashion because the Canadian 
doctor needs to be located in Ontario or in Canada and licensed. So they wouldn't be able to do it from a location in the U.S. And initiation of that prescription has to happen in the Canadian uh, border. So there is some uh, differences across the provinces, but, um, you know, unfortunately, there are some bad actors out there that uh, find ways around uh, adhering to the regulations. Could that be one of the solutions that other provinces adopt what we're doing in Ontario? Or or maybe do we just say, hey, United States, there's a limit on how much you can get from us? Yeah, I think, I mean, there already is uh, in terms of what can be brought in and out of the country. And there's very strict uh, regulations um, to monitor and to make sure uh, that things like this don't happen. But uh, like anything, enforcement can be very challenging. So I think, yes, looking at tweaking the regulations, increasing surveillance and monitoring of uh, the supply chain and particular distribution of these drugs. And, you know, where things don't smell right, where you have you know different provinces involved and a significant amount of drugs going down into the U.S., for things like Ozempic, where you know there's a significant demand uh, and not enough supply in the U.S., where we have supply in Canada, then I think there needs to be intervention from a government perspective. We got about thirty seconds. Is this a, a bit of a slippery slope? Because if we need a drug in uh, whatever that drug is from the U.S. and we don't have it here, um, they might say, "Well, no, you're you're not playing with us. We're not going to play with you." Well, we saw that with the OTC products uh, for cold and uh, flu and, and certainly for pain and fever, where we did import drugs. But that was done through the proper channels um, and sourcing it through governments uh, and different wholesalers. So I think you know that wouldn't necessarily negate those opportunities. We just need to make sure that there's supply in both countries and that we respect the fact that uh, you know Canada can't uh, supply the U.S. market or fill any gaps given you know the size of our population and, and how much distribution there is of products in the country. That makes sense to me. Justin, appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. In my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. T-shirts that were designed by Hollywood actor Ryan Reynolds for the Terry Fox Foundation have raised $1 million. And that was just during the two-month pre-sale period. The Dear Terry shirts, uh, by the way, they look amazing. They're inspired by the thousands of letters that Terry received before and after his Marathon of Hope. And the shirt comes with the launch of the hashtag Dear Terry Initiative, which invites you to share messages to the Terry Fox Foundation for a chance to be featured on a commemorative poster, which is kind of cool. Joining us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Terry Fox's brother, Fred Fox. Fred, good morning. How did Ryan Reynolds get involved in the Terry Fox Foundation? Yeah, you know, I think it's very similar to so many young kids right across Canada for the past 42 years or so, uh, 43 years. Um, You know, in grade two, he did a Terry Fox run at his school and uh, he's been inspired and considered Terry his hero ever since. So uh, he's been connected, you know, he's very uh, active in social media. And uh, last year he did a couple of posts. So we reached out to him uh, earlier or later last year. asked if he would be would like to be involved. So he worked with uh, our family and coming up with uh, this year's T-shirt design, uh, the Terry, Dear Terry design that we have. And uh, he, he's been awesome. He um, uh, posted something early, late in February of this year, and it's been crazy, as you mentioned, uh, with the T-shirt sale. What do you think of the T-shirt? 
I, I love it. Um, you know, every year we have a different T-shirt. Terry Fox is right across Canada. I love the T-shirts. Every You know, I've met people who have T-shirts from 30, 35 years. So I think this is going to be one of the better ones. Um, you know, a million dollars uh, in T-shirt sales in the last two months and all of it going to cancer research. How can people get one? Uh, easy. Go online um, to our website, terryfox.org. Uh, you can uh, purchase a T-shirt there. But even better than that, uh, register for the Terry Fox Run, uh, create your own fundraising page. And as you mentioned, um, you know, we'd love to hear uh, other people's uh, Dear Terry messages. Uh, as you said, Terry received so many uh, before, after he was forced to stop in Thunder Bay. Uh, so many, 50,000 letters and cards. Terry received uh, all of them probably with the message, Dear Terry. Have any stuck with you over the years that you recall being just ones that were so compelling or or strong um, that really hit home with you? Not, not you know, just anyone in particular. Um, you know, even today, you know, last year after the Terry Fox school runs, we see receive a lot of Dear Terry letters uh, from schools and but uh, I remember reading one many, many years ago that came from the archives that we we have of Terry's letters. And it was about, uh, it was from a mother who, um, you know, had a son who had been diagnosed with cancer and, uh, you know, just wrote a message, uh, you know, don't know word by word, but it was in regards to how Terry has been an inspiration to her son in dealing with his cancer diagnosis. And he's been an inspiration to millions over the years. Now, the 43rd annual Terry Fox Run happens September 17th. Uh, those who did enter uh, yesterday to participate in the run uh, actually got entered into a draw to win one of these limited edition shirts signed by Reynolds, which is kind of cool, too. Um, when you think of Terry and these messages and the T-shirt and everything that goes into the foundation, what comes to mind? What, I, I'm sure you get somewhat emotional thinking of all the great that he has done and all the great that this foundation has done. Yeah, you know, it, yesterday being April 12th, um, you know, the start of Terry's Marathon of Hope 43 years ago, it's a, always a day of reflection. And I always go back to Terry's very first words he wrote in his journal on that day of April 12th, 1980. And they were, today is a day it all begins. He could never, ever have imagined what those would, words would mean all these years later and the lives that he's impacted. You know, the foundation does its work um, in, in fundraising. Our family is involved because we feel it's so important to be. But it's so many thousands of Canadians, people around the world, in fact, who have uh, been inspired by Terry, who have raised money for cancer research, over $850 million raised since 1980. And, um, you know, it, Terry could never have imagined that, you know, his simple goal of $1 million in 1980 when he left St. John's uh, 43 years ago would become what it is today and and making a difference in the lives of so many. That That $1 billion mark is not that far off. That's incredible to think of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When you think of Terry's goal, original goal was $1 million. When he got to Port of Basque before he uh, took the ferry to Cape Breton, that changed to a dollar for every Canadian. At the time, 24 million people in Canada. Terry saw that goal reach before he passed away in June of 81. And But, uh, you know, just, again, close to a billion dollars only because of the support and love and uh, commitment that so many have made to Terry's dream and cause.
It's a phenomenal legacy. It is an amazing experience. Uh, This year's 43rd annual Terry Fox Run, September 17th. Uh, Go online, get a T-shirt, enter to participate, terryfox.org. Fred, really appreciate the time. Uh, We'll talk to you down the road. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It was uh, only a matter of time, and that time is going to come this summer after uh, a year in which the Tiger Cats have looked at a number of options in terms of their iconic wall of honor. And a year after legendary quarterback Danny McManus was enshrined, the club, along with the Ticats Alumni Association, is going to add the 26th name and number to that exclusive list. And when the Ticats host Edmonton on August the 17th, the name Darren Flutie and his old number 82 is going to be emblazoned on the Wall of Honor. Joining me now is Canadian Football Hall of Fame receiver, two-time Grey Cup champion, three-time CFL All-Star, and iconic Tiger Cat himself, Darren Flutie, here on Good Morning Hamilton. Darren, good morning. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. Good morning to you. What a nice introduction. Thank you. Who broke the news to you that you were going on this wall of honor, confirming that, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to be immortalized on the the, the stadium at Tim Hortons Field. How'd you get the news? Who broke it to you? Well, I mean, first of all, yes, you're right. It's an incredible honor, especially when I kind of looked at the names of the players that are up there already. Uh, Last year, when I went up for Danny, I just figured, oh, Danny's going up on the wall. Of course, I wanted to be there and, you know, celebrate that honor for him. And then there was some talk kind of among the players like, oh, Wood, you, Wood is kind of what my nickname was when I played. They all like, oh, you're next. You're next. You'll probably go up next year. And I'm like, Oof. I wasn't really thinking that was a true possibility, <laughs> but I gave it no thought at all, actually. And then Bob Young called me maybe two weeks ago. And now I don't follow maybe the Ticats as well as I should. So I didn't know who the owners were. I know Orlando's the coach and a couple of the players. But when Bob Young called me and he was talking right away, I'm like, I don't know who this guy is. I didn't know what he was talking about at first. <laughs> and I, I don't mean to be disrespectful. but yeah, yeah. And then finally he got to like, I guess he's caretaker of the Hamilton Tiger Cats and and then he said something about going up on the wall of honor. But that was like five, ten minutes into the conversation. So <laughs> that's kind of how it happened. And then I started to get texts and congrats and all that from like players and some some people I know in Canada. So that's kind of how I got the news. That's pretty cool. And and obviously well-deserved and long overdue. And, you know, as you know, this is the highest honor that the Ticats organization can bestow upon a former player or coach or builder. What does that recognition mean to you? Uh, I mean, it means everything. It w- even without the honor, my years in the CFL are the best years of my career. It was just so much fun. It was great to play in that league. And I took it very seriously. But now I can look back and say, wow, I really enjoyed those whatever 12, 13 years. But then when you take it a step further and you get inducted into the CFL Hall of Fame and then a team like puts you up with only say 20 something other players. It's you think of all the the people that have played for the Hamilton Ticats through the history of the CFL. And now I'm one of 20. I don't know what the number is to go up on their wall of honor. Yeah, of course it's incredibly 
hum- humbling to go up there and be a part of that group of people. You so, you are you are number twenty six on the list. Danny yes. Danny Mac was number twenty five last year. So yeah, it's it's an exclusive club. I mean, it, it's the who's who the Tie Cats. It's Angela Mosca, Garney Henley, Grover Covington, Earl Winfield, Rocky DiPietro, Ozzy's on the list. Uh, Joe Monford, Rob right. Hitchcock, your your two teammates from ninety yeah. nine. How, how cool right. is it to be reunited with them again? Oh, I mean that that's the best. I can really relate with the guys obviously i played with joe momford and hitch and and d mac and ozzy i mean we we shared all those memories from 98 until i retired in 2002 and those were just great years i mean coming from edmonton to a team that had won one or two games in 97 but they were so sneaky good in 97 like danny and i knew that because we played them i think twice yeah, we played them twice that mm-hmm. year, in 97. Yeah. And they were so tough to move the ball and, and score against. Their defense was so good. They just had trouble offensively. And that's where teams would beat them, you know, with turnovers or them, Hamilton not scoring enough. So I think Danny and I were confident enough at that point to say, wow, I mean, we could really make an impact if we went out there because they have the talent. You know, if you put Danny at quarterback and you add one more receiver to the group of guys they had, we we were really optimistic about how we could do in Hamilton. And sure enough, the first year, you know, we went to the Grey Cup and then we finished it off in 99. Yeah, it turned out pretty good, I would say. Our guest on uh, Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is the great Darren Flutie, Canadian Football Hall of Fame receiver, two-time Grey Cup champion, was a CFL All-Star three times as well, fourth all-time in CFL history in receiving yards, fifth all-time in receptions. Um, before you arrived at Hamilton, you mentioned it, you were, you're playing in Edmonton. Before that, you were with BC, both times with DMAC, and you yep. won the Grey Cup in 94 with McManus at quarterback, here in 99 with DMAC. Why did you two work so well together? Well, I think we approached the game like we were very similar in our attitudes about playing football. We were so happy to be able to play football and the quality of football i mean obviously when we first got up here it was just it was the same to me as it was in the nfl trying to get open against guys that were very good defensive backs but i think you you just can't let up at all you got to keep trying to get better and danny was that way and i think to an extent i was that way so we got along like right from the beginning if it was two people staying after practice, it was usually Danny and I, and I'm working on my routes and he's throwing to me. So, you know, we did that for years working on specific routes and it just created a bond and a friendship that never stopped. It paid off big time on the field. And certainly uh, you guys have lifelong memories off the field as well. August 17th is going to be a huge day for a number of Tiger Cats fans and the organization. And of course, Darren Flutie, his number and his number 82 will be added to the wall of honor. Darren, really appreciate your time today. Congratulations on this honor. And uh, we'll see you this summer. Thank you. Great talking to you. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A survey from Auto Trader shows interest in electric vehicles has softened after we saw a spike last year in car shoppers showing a greater interest in EVs 
all due to high gas prices. We saw the prices of the pumps go up. And we thought, hmm, an EV might be a pretty good idea. Barish Akirek is the vice president of insights and intelligence at Auto Trader and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Barish, good morning. How are you? Thanks for having me, Eric. I'm good. Yourself? I'm fantastic. Your survey shows 56% of Canadians are considering an EV for their next car, but that's down from 68% last year. Are fewer people searching for EVs on AutoTrader as well? That's correct. So uh, going back to uh, March 2022, um, thinking about the timelines, uh, as you may remember, that's when the uh, situation in Ukraine uh, had just started. Uh, so gas prices overall uh, increased by quite a bit. It was, I think at the national level, it was over $2. And uh, what we saw was we saw a huge increase in uh, EV leads and EV searches at that time, which is obviously reflected in the uh, last year's survey results. And this year, things are somewhat more normal. I guess I can say that. And um, gas prices have come down a little bit, although they're uh, they're higher compared to pre-COVID levels, um, uh, but we are seeing a slightly less consideration, as you suggested. It's down from uh, uh, 68% to 56% this year. So gas prices aren't as high as they were last year, certainly at this time, but there are some other factors at play that might be keeping people away from EVs. High interest rates, for example, inflation affecting everyone's pocketbook, uh, EV prices as well. Is that also a factor or a barrier for some to jump into the market? 100%. So you summarize it really well. Uh Given the situation, the economic situation in Canada and in the world, I guess um, they're playing a notable role in this shift. And when we are looking at the top factors impacting declining interest among those who did not consider, who does not consider EVs, are uh, vehicle prices. Forty percent of consumers said that uh, that's the. that's one of the reasons. Interest rates, 24%, and inflation is uh, at 13%. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Barish Akurek, Vice President, Insights and Intelligence at Auto Trader. They conducted a survey that shows 56% of Canadians are considering an electric vehicle for their next car, but that is down from 68% last year. There are you know, the ongoing concerns about uh, battery life, battery charging stations or the lack thereof in Ontario, as well as no rebates to help people get into one of these cars. Are, are those main factors as well still? Yeah, so uh, we asked about the top barriers and the top three are, uh, as again, as you suggested, uh, Rick, uh, range, range anxiety, it's become a term. Um, I, there's that still seems to be the case, which is uh, aligned with our findings from last year. The second one is, as you may know, uh, overall car prices are up, um, given uh, what's going on with, uh, uh, with the shortages and supply chain disruptions that impact that started impacting the market in 2020. So, vehicle prices is is another barrier, and uh, lastly, um, charging availability. Right. So um, I know that there's a quite a bit of a, uh, a focus on uh, implementing uh, more and more charging stations, but uh, uh, probably a little behind. 
there are plans to improve these numbers, uh, but uh, consumers uh, do notice these things and uh, they 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 make decisions based on uh, what's available and what's coming down the pipeline. So that's that's high level what we see what we hear. Uh, we know that Tesla has dominated the EV market for a while, but what what other brands apart from that are, are people shopping for or looking at at Auto Trader when it comes to EVs? Yeah, Tesla Tesla is still the top model uh, when we look at our uh, the the, the uh, most search EVs in. Uh, in quarter uh, Q1 of 2023, the top four models is all Tesla, starting from Tesla Model 3. The Y is the second, the S is the third, and the X is the fourth. And then after the Teslas, the Ford F-150 Lightning is a uh, uh, is a brand that uh, make a model that consumers are interested in. The sixth one is Honda CRV Hybrid. Uh, followed by two BMWs, the i4 and the iX. And the last two in the top 10 list are the Hyundai Tucson and Honda Accord. Last one for you. There was a similar survey that was recently done in the United States that shows about 40% of American drivers are somewhat likely to switch to an EV for their next vehicle, much lower than what your study found. Do you think there's a particular reason or do you think the same factors still come into play? I mean, I think it's they're they're pretty similar, right? I think they also saw some sort of a decline on a year-over-year basis. So, uh, looking at overall trends, I think we are kind of uh, aligned. I, I do I do know the uh, the research that you're referring to, and we did some sort of a comparison to understand the differences between the Canadian and the U.S. market. And overall, the results are pretty similar, but percentages are a little different, which is kind of normal because. You're using a different methodology, uh, different uh, audiences, so I'm not really surprised, but overall, the trends are pretty similar. Well, I'm sure one day soon, most uh, Canadians will be in some sort of EV. We know that the federal government, at least by 2026, has set a mandate for at least 20% of car sales to be electric, so it's it looks like we're heading in that direction anyways. Some uh, people might be jumping into one sooner rather than later. We shall see. Barish, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Hey, longtime global news reporter Sean O'Shea recently took a bucket list trip to Egypt and Jordan. He tweeted out earlier this month a photo of uh, himself on a camel with the pyramids in the background. It was an amazing trip, as you can see by the photos. What country is on your vacation bucket list? Well, let's ask Sean himself. Sean O'Shea, consumer and investigative reporter with Global News, joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Sean, good morning. How are you? Great, Rick. Thanks for having me on. So why Egypt and Jordan? Why was that on your bucket list? My wife at an early age thought about becoming an Egyptologist. So for her whole life, she thought about Egypt, all the places that she wanted to go. She wanted to go to you know, to see the pyramids and to see the tombs. And so we did all that. It was fantastic. We saw King Tut's tomb. Uh, we saw the treasures. Uh, as you said, we got on the camel. We saw the pyramids. We soaked in the, we, you know, floated in the Dead Sea in Jordan. Uh, so much historical. When we travel, Rick, we like to see things that are educational as well as interesting and fun. There's just so much history in that part of the world. Uh, safe travel. And we had a, we didn't realize this, Rick, but we had an, actually a plain clothes armed guard on our bus tour for the whole time. They didn't announce this, but because Egypt has had some issues over the past years, as you know, uh, they put security 
discrete security on these tours. So, and they said, look, when you go back, tell everybody it's safe. And from our perspective, it was. Well, that is tremendous. And that peace of mind means a lot, especially when you're in a different country in another part of the world. How long were you there for? And what was the one highlight for you? Mm, two weeks, a week in Jordan and a week in Egypt. And that's always a tough one because it's separating one from the other. I think the camel ride up to the to the pyramids was was fantastic. It wasn't very expensive. It lasted for about half an hour, gave you perspective. It wasn't really touristy. Uh, the other one was was fantastic was Petra, the, the old ancient city in Petra. Uh, Oprah Winfrey was there the, the same day we were, although she didn't have to come in with the crowds when they closed. She came in, took her private group in. That was fantastic for anybody uh, who's seen that, you know, in the movies, um, you know, the, the famous treasury there. That was fantastic. There's just so much history. And it's sometimes, Rick, when you go on a trip, I found it could be disappointing. You've read about it. You've seen pictures like, ah, no big deal. All the places we went. It lived up to the expectations. It all lived up to the hype. That is awesome. What's next on the bucket list? Uh, we're going to go to Spain in the fall. My wife and I are going to do a driving trip, uh, cash in all of our uh, points for loyalty points, this, that, the other, to you know make it as, as cost-effective as possible. So that's what we're going to do uh, in the fall. And, you know, we had never been group travelers. A lot of people like it. Some people don't. We never had. But after COVID, we've taken some trips that have been with other groups. It's more economical in many cases. It uh, takes a lot of the worry out of it. You don't have to drive. You feel a little sleepy after you've done something. You can, you know, put your head down and not have to worry about navigating, even though I like driving. So there's other options, too, for value. And we've had some really good value trips, which is really important considering that people are counting their dollars these days. That sounds absolutely amazing. Well, uh, thanks for sharing your story and good luck on your next excursion, Sean. Thanks for the time. Thanks, and I hope you win the air conditioning battle. <laughs> I will. Sean <laughs> O'Shea, right. consumer and investigative reporter with Global News. Yeah, what a great trip that sounds like. Jordan and Egypt, two you know, places that are just steeped in history and have amazing artifacts, things to see, tours to take. Uh, hey, I encourage you to go there if you can find the time and the money to do so. Obviously, you know, not cheap, especially these days post-COVID to travel, but uh, well worth the money, uh, as you heard from Sean. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.